Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Welcome to episode three of the Queen of the Sciences podcast. Today we are talking about the Gospel of Mark, greatly beloved by both Dad and me. Now, first of all, even though we don't want you to stop listening to our podcast for any reason, reason we would suggest that you pause it now rush over to your Bible and read the whole thing in one go. It'll only take you an hour. Better yet, go to BibleGateway.com and print off the entire thing with no headings, no chapters, no verses. So all you see is the text. It's really hard to get a sense of the flow of the story with the way it's broken up. But this will show you reading it straight through the whole dramatic unfolding of the story of the Gospel of Mark. Now that you've done that, welcome back again. We are going to talk our way through this gospel today. To give you some highlights of what's ahead, I want to mention some of the surprising features of Mark. These are things that we don't necessarily notice as unique to Mark because we're so used to kind of conflating at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, sometimes also John, so we have just in our heads one comprehensive gospel story. But if you look at Mark just by himself, then certain features stand out that are really startling, especially compared to the other three. So just a few of those are that there is no nativity story. It just picks up in the wilderness with John the Baptist. No angels or mangers to prepare the way. There are also, at the other end of the gospel, no resurrection appearances. We are told that Jesus is raised from the dead, but we don't actually see him. There is nothing in between those two points that reveal to us Jesus' inner life or his self-perception. Very much unlike the Gospel of John, we don't know anything about what's going on in Jesus' head here. Another surprising thing, in chapter 6, Jesus gets to Nazareth, his hometown, and we are told he could do no miracles there because of their unbelief. Very startling and very embarrassing for a Messiah not to be able to do any miracles. We also have a funny appearance of just one verse or so in which a naked young man shows up when Jesus gets arrested and then disappears. And finally, we have an inconclusive ending, and not only inconclusive, a grammatically awkward ending that ends with the Greek word gar. It's one of these post-positives, which means it can't be the first word in a sentence, it has to be the second. But as a rule, something is always going to come after it. So it basically says, the rim- women ran away because they were afraid and amazed. But the because word, or the for word, is actually the very last word. This is such a strange way to end the story about Jesus that one, maybe two later endings were added on later, which are canonical, but probably not authentic to the original text of Mark itself. So that should whet your appetite for the many strange delights that we are going to talk about in this hour. Now, our main interest here is going to be a theological rather than a historical interpretation of Mark, but we thought it would be helpful to give some background information. So I'm going to hand it over to you now. Dad, you can talk a little bit about the rediscovery of Mark as an interesting and important gospel, the way it has been dealt with in the scholarship, and in particular, how you came to be so interested in it back in your graduate student days. Yeah, the... uh discovery of the Gospel of Mark in the last 30 or 40 years uh, is quite a a striking phenomenon. In the 19th century, with the rise of critical biblical scholarship, it was early on hypothesized that the canonical order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, could not possibly be correct. 
Like the canonical order was not chronological. Was not the yeah the chronological was not the order in which these texts were written. That Mark's gospel had to come first. That seems pretty evident based upon careful comparison of how Matthew and uh, Luke uh, utilized Mark's gospel as the backbone of their own. It's easy to explain additions to Mark's story in Matthew and Luke. Uh, it would be very difficult to explain how someone reduced Matthew or Luke to Mark. So that's kind of a, a truism of modern scholarship that Mark is the first written gospel. But in the 19th century uh, context, that led to the notion that Mark was first and therefore the closest to the Jesus of history, and therefore the most historical of the Gospels. And uh, throughout the 19th century, then, there were various attempts on the basis of the Gospel of Mark uh, to write a historical biography of Jesus. Albert Schweitzer, at the end of the 19th century, pegged this scholarly uh, use of Mark, the quest of the historical Jesus. But what he discovered after a hundred years of attempts to write a biography of Jesus based on the Gospel of Mark was that modern authors regularly simply recreated Jesus in their own image. Perhaps one of the more humorous examples of this was a biography that appeared in America uh, in the 1920s uh, by a businessman entitled Jesus, the greatest salesman who ever existed. So Schweitzer exposed uh, the fact that there's simply not enough material, reliable material from a historical critical point of view uh, with which to write a, a biography of Jesus. So I think the the point relating back to stuff we've talked about in our last two episodes, the issue here is not strictly whether it's true or not, but whether it's neutral or not. And modern historical methods are always trying to seek out neutral, independently verifiable, factual information that they can then construct into a, whatever use that they need it for. But you cannot get neutral information out of Mark. Whether or not it's true is, a, in a way, a second kind of question. Yeah, I, I think the the after the 19th century, it became increasingly clear that Mark and all the other Gospels of the New Testament are definitely written from the post-Easter standpoint of faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And that's not a neutral point of view, obviously. You know, that's, <laughs> no, indeed. that's indeed a, a conviction of faith, which then looks back at the historical memories of Jesus uh, to assemble them into, a, as it were, a preamble to the decisive events of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So some scholars even called the Gospel of Mark uh, a passion narrative with a lengthy introduction. That inset developed, but there were a couple of other developments in tandem with Schweitzer's explosion of the 19th century quest of the historical Jesus based on the idea that Mark was historically closest to Jesus and something like that. And that was Schweitzer himself theorized that Jesus, well, let me just be blunt here. Schweitzer 
uh, left the Christian faith in the conviction that Jesus was basically an apocalyptic nut that uh, who had expected God to vindicate him with armies of angels when he marched into Jerusalem. And when that didn't happen, Jesus took matters into his own hands to force God's hand by uh, exposing himself uh, to death uh, by execution by the Romans. And he famously concluded his book, Quest of the Historical Jesus, by saying Jesus threw himself against the wheel, but the wheel turned and crushed him. And so he he comes to us as one unknown, he said, kind of vaguely and mystically. Well, even Mark has a happier ending than Schweitzer. Gosh. Well, yeah, let's we'll get to that eventually. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. But I'm just, the, the, the point here is that the conservative attempt to try to found faith on a knowledge of the historical Jesus and utilizing the earliest gospel mark for that purpose, uh, shipwrecked. And Schweitzer's great book is the shipwreck of the quest of the historical Jesus in that sense. Not that it seems to have stopped subsequent generations from trying. I wish they would all go back and read Schweitzer again. (laughs) But anyway, let's go on from there. For another time. Another time, right. At the same, about the same time, two other German scholars, Johannes Weiss and William Rada, made important uh, contributions uh, Johannes Weiss wrote a book on the kingdom of God in the preaching of Jesus, and he demolished the 19th century idea that the kingdom of God is um, to be understood along the lines of Kant, Immanuel Kant's moral philosophy, the progressive realization of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of humanity. Uh, being worked out by the ethical activism of disciples. Uh, That had been a kind of predominant 19th century interpretation of the expression kingdom of God. But Schweitzer, uh, excuse me, but Weiss looked carefully, for example, at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, about how Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news, that's Paul's term, remember the gospel, the good news of God, and saying that the time is fulfilled and the reign of God, basileia to theo, is uh, drawing near, repent and believe in the gospel. A couple of comments about that. Basileia Totheo, the kingdom of God, probably is better translated in a dynamic sense, the reign or the sovereignty of God. And the word drawing near uh, is a word that's often used in military contexts, uh, in the sen- in sense of an army drawing near to lay siege to, uh, uh, in battle. Uh, and indeed, as Johannes Weiss reflected on Jesus's preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God, as it's recorded in Mark, came to the daunting conclusion for 19th century liberal Protestants that Jesus understood the kingdom antithetically, as opposed to the kingdom of the devil. It was an apocalyptic notion that the kingdom of God is advancing like an army on the march to liberate uh, the land from usurpers, the kingdom of the devil. And as we'll see as we talk further 
about Mark, that apocalyptic motif of the invading God coming to liberate the creation from demonic usurpers. So would that mean would that mean that Jesus is not here to give us practical advice about how to get a little bit better each day? Uh, oh, what a d- disappointment that must have been to 19th century <laughs> ethical idealists, right? Yes, it's not a progressive ethic. It's an apocalyptic uh, ethic that's going to be commended in Mark. So that was jo- Johannes Weiss's contribution. And then one more nail in the coffin of the 19th century view of Mark was executed by William Breda, who wrote a book called The Messianic Secret in Mark. And Rada kind of in a funny way agreed with the conservatives that the Gospel of Mark was historically close to Jesus and it was written in order to provide a, a plausible a historical account of Jesus. But with this ooh, painful twist, that in fact Jesus had no idea that he was the Messiah or the Son of God. The historical Jesus didn't know that or believe that. And the early church, uh, represented by the evangelist Mark, were thoroughly embarrassed by this historical fact. And so Mark invented the motif of the secrecy of Jesus's messianic identity as a cover-up for the fact that the real historical Jesus didn't believe himself to be the Christ or the Son of God. That's one of the other. Oh dear. <laughs> that's one of the other striking features of Mark is this whole motif of the messianic secret. We could have mentioned that earlier, right? That that Jesus is constantly silencing the demons and telling them not to tell anybody who he is. We'll get into that more and more as we go along. So by the time I was a seminary student in the late uh, mid-1970s, uh, uh, Rudolf Bultmann's famous uh, form criticism had come to dominate New Testament studies, studies of the Gospels. And form criticism basically isolated all the episodes in the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels and analyzed their form or genre and classified them and so forth. What this had, this is a very valuable study, but what it had the, what it affected was the idea that before Mark writes his gospel, there's just a jumble of various unorganized stories about Jesus circulating orally in the church. And it was time for someone to collect all these stories and string them together. So as a seminary student, I opened up my Nestle's edition of the Greek New Testament and I and Boltman's history of the synoptic tradition, and I laboriously cataloged all of Boltman's classifications of the various stories, the pearls, and put them in the margins of my Nestle's Greek New Testament. And that's how I wow. I went to seminary with the idea that Mark's gospel, the first gospel, was a work of a very plodding chronicler who was simply stitching these stories together like pearls on a string was the metaphor that was used. Uh, So Mark, the narrator, was nothing but 
either if you're a conservative, uh, very cautiously inserting these stories into a basically uh, historical framework. If you're a liberal, simply collecting the stories haphazardly without much creativity at all. And that's kind of how I entered in graduate school into the seminar of my esteemed professor J. Lewis Martin on the Gospel of Mark. That's the working assumption I had in my head. And in this seminar, Martin said, I have one basic requirement of you. Every week, simply to read head to tail, just like you instructed our audience at the beginning today, to read the Gospel of Mark. Excellent. Excellent, except, of course, he wanted us to read it in Greek from head to tail. <laughs> nice. Head to tail for, for 13 consecutive weeks. It was the greatest seminar I ever had in graduate school. I believe it. That's amazing. The scales fell from my eyes as I discovered step by step what a creative narrator and theological genius the evangelist we call Mark was. So, I think that's, uh, I would mention that in my class was uh, the professor now at Duke University, Joel Marcus, and he and I shared this uh, sense of discovery at the feet of J. Lewis Martin. Joel went on to write the two-volume Anchor Bible commentary on the Gospel of Mark, executing, uh, I think, rather thoroughly and rather convincingly Martin's conviction that the Gospel of Mark is an, a sample of early Christian apocalyptic theology and perhaps uh, somehow related to the tradition stemming from Paul. Uh, we can talk about that those connections later on a little bit more. Thank you. That's a great historical overview. And I should add, for the sake of the historical record, that although you were in systematic theology, not New Testament, you wrote your dissertation on the Gospel of Mark, very much bringing together the disciplines of theology with biblical studies, which doesn't happen all that much. Well, I think, as in your case, it's happening more and more. <laughs> so yeah. well, let's just let's just say three cheers for that and move on with the program. Great. I'll just give a few quick remarks about my own falling in love with the Gospel of Mark, which, you know, you must have somehow planted the seeds there, but I don't remember consciously until more recently talking with you about Mark and how much I loved it. Um, I found it because it was my first New Testament exegesis seminar in seminary with C. Clifton Black, and he was a, a great teacher. Well, we did not actually uh, read all the way through the Greek every week. Thank goodness that would have... Um, eaten up all my other class time, too. Um, but he did introduce us to the whole range of, of uh, critical approaches and methods and ways of reading the Bible, which I found tremendously helpful. And both he and my other beloved New Testament teacher, Don Jewell, though I, I didn't study Mark with him per se, I think by the time I was studying, um, and this was uh, right at the turn of the last century, um, there was definitely a movement more towards the literary way of interpreting the scripture. It seems to me that by then, 
there was a sense of like the historical quest has done what it could. We have a pretty good sense of where things come from. Uh, I think my teachers were a little tired of overwrought claims for historical certainty, but also overwrought claims for uh, rejecting historical or rejecting things in the scriptures as being certainly not true. Um, and that instead we were directed to understand the New Testament literature as the kind of literature it was in its own integrity. So when I started getting back into Mark again sometime after graduate school, it was really discovering it as a complete literary work, a story with integrity. Um, that's something I would love to develop further at another time. But basically, in any human story, and this is a profoundly cross-cultural thing, you have your inciting incident, and then for the bulk of the story, you have the buildup of conflict. Usually about halfway through, there is a turning point, and then you have the big payoff at the end. And if all those pieces are in place, we have a story that we cannot put down. We have to stay with all the way through. Um, and if any of those are missing, the story generally fails. And there are certainly a lot of uh, published books out there that have failed <laughs> as stories. But I, that's why I, I have come in uh, a number of occasions to teach Mark in church settings, uh, you know, conferences or congregations or whatever, and have us just rip through the entire gospel, just all in one setting. Um, as again, you mentioned, I, I said at the beginning, because you have such a different relationship to the story and to its theological meaning if you take it all as one story and not as isolated snippets, whether it's pearls on the string um, as you're doing your graduate school homework, or if you hear it in discrete bits Sunday after Sunday, but out of order um, and a week apart. So what I think we're going to do now, um, or what we'll definitely do now, is do exactly this. We're going to work right through the Gospel of Mark, talk through the story. As we go along, we're going to highlight particular things that we think are important or interesting. But we want to give you a sense of the whole story as the disclosure of the theological themes and points that Mark is trying to make here. And in so doing, as you said, Dad, give honor to what a brilliant and creative work this is um, as the first gospel, the invention of the genre, so to speak. Go ahead. Let's go for it. Yes. Let's do it. All right. So our inciting incident um, is not Jesus, but John. Again, we mentioned there's no birth story. John appears in the wilderness, baptizing, talking about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. An important note here, which we will get back to um, in the future when we talk more about baptism, is that as far as we know, nobody baptized anyone else until John. There are lots of self performed ablutions or cleansings in the Jewish past, but you always did it to yourself. John is the first one to baptize other people as the objects and recipients of the water. Um, and I think this is quite significant for how Christian baptism develops, but also, as we're going to see, as a, an icon of what's going to happen with Jesus through his story here. So John shows up in the wilderness. Jesus goes out to get baptized by him as well. This is the Jesus who we are told is going to baptize not only with water, but also with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is baptized, something unique happens. The heavens open and the Spirit comes down like a dove. Again, often in, uh, or quite habitually in, in uh, 
Christian practice, we understand that the Spirit comes with baptism, and we think that's sort of a self-evident thing. But here, it's a startling thing that the Spirit should come on Jesus when he's baptized. That wasn't what was happening to anyone else. And a voice comes from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So right at the outset, we have this Jesus with the baptism, with the Spirit, and with the voice from heaven. Attentive readers will note this is the first indication also we have in the Gospel of Mark of the Trinitarian nature of God. Um, Dad, did you want to comment something about the baptism? Yeah, just one point, that the words are addressed to Jesus only. There's no mention here that anyone else hears or overhears the heavenly words. Right, that comes in the other Gospels. They fill in that story a little bit more. But it's important for understanding Mark because of the contrast in form of address that will occur in the Transfiguration story. So we'll get to that as we go down the road. Right. So then what happens when you are blessed with the Spirit? You get driven into the wilderness for a great time with Satan, animals, and angels. And we get that all in two verses, nothing like, again, the synoptic brothers who have a lot more to say about Jesus' temptation. But that's where it has to start with the spirit-driven wrestling with Satan in the wilderness. And, you know, if the, the image of the kingdom of God here is the preparation for an apocalyptic invasion of Satan's kingdom, then this is Jesus having his uh, first round, so to speak, with Satan. Then he comes into Galilee and he is ready to start preaching. And this part of the story, this first half before a turning point is all going to take place in and around Galilee and its margins. We're not going to be coming near Jerusalem for a long time yet. And um, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I would just like to point out from a Lutheran law gospel perspective, you see both of those things there. There's both a command and a promise repent and believe, but also because the kingdom of God is coming. And we are to infer that this is a good thing, even if it is probably also an unsettling thing. Now, from this point, we get um, an upward trajectory of success that is ironically setting you up as the reader so that you don't realize that how fast the story is going to turn. So Jesus comes into Galilee. He collects some disciples who are so taken with him that they abandon their poor father right in the boat. That's some fourth commandment for you. They go into Capernaum. He enters the synagogue. He teaches. People are astonished at his teaching. Um, I remember being really startled by this, that for us, you know, feeding the 5,000 or healing leprosy seem like the startling things. But the first thing the crowd reacts to with amazement is his teaching, that there is something unique about his teaching that has not been heard before. And then we get to the first healing that Jesus performs. This is the man with the unclean spirit that cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Dad, would you like to take up the response here and give us a little foreshadowing of what's coming? (laughs) Well, just remember these demonic words, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And how similarly Peter will confess that Jesus is the Christ in chapter 8. And likewise, notice here in chapter 1 how Jesus uh, rebuked the demon, saying, Be silent and come out of him. This is a Greek word, epitimaso, that's used here, 
rebuke. It's translated as rebuke. And typically, all through the next seven chapters, Jesus will use this term rebuke whenever he silences demons, forbidding them to disclose his true identity. And as we will see when we come to chapter 8, this special technical term for silencing a demon who's letting the secret out, epitomaso, this verb repeats itself between Jesus and Peter. And as we've noted before, the gospel has some serious public relations problems. It does not market itself well. And we see this right here at the, at the origin that demons recognize who Jesus really is and he tells them to be silent and not telling anyone. Now, how is that a good way to build your fame? However, even with silenced demons, Jesus is doing pretty well for himself. The crowds are all saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread. And this becomes a growing problem for Jesus. The paparazzi apparently existed even back then. But now we have two things, both the teaching with authority and the commanding of the unclean spirits. Then the next episode, we add another skill to Jesus' set. He goes to the house of Simon, whose mother-in-law is ill with a fever. He immediately heals her. And what do you know? By sundown, they're bringing him all the sick and the oppressed by demons. The whole city is gathered at his door. And so Jesus has to do nothing but heal and exercise. But it says he would not let the demons speak because they knew him. Again, trying to keep this identity a secret. Jesus then departs to pray in private. The people are looking for him. Simon comes and fetches him. And so he continues going throughout Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. Another leper comes to him then saying, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus is moved with pity and says, I will be clean. And Jesus once again silences him, sternly charges him and sends him away and just says, go to the priest, do the common ritual for being cleaned of leprosy, but don't make a big deal of this. However, we are told he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town and people are coming to him from every quarter. And that's all just in chapter one. So we have a lot of very action-packed story here. Bringing us up forward now to, to chapter two, we have another wonderful healing story. This personally is one of my favorites from the whole gospel. It's the story of the paralytic whose four friends bring him to Jesus. And this is the really remarkable thing to me about it. Well, two things. One is that this is an indication that Jesus actually had a home and was resident in Capernaum. If you look at the Greek, it does seem to imply that it is his house. And we know from other gospels that Capernaum is generally called Jesus' adult home. Somehow this is not made it into the, you know, we talk about Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Jerusalem, but somehow Capernaum has been left out. But it seems like Jesus' uh, locale for his adult life is based in Capernaum. He has a house, and in order to get at Jesus, these four guys actually break his roof. <laughs> I think that's extraordinary. And instead of being pissed off at them for destroying his house, he s- looks at their faith. And that's, this is the other great thing. He sa- sees their faith and then turns to the paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. This is, to me, just an incredible witness to the communal knitting together that happens in the Christian faith and in the church, that it's not um, a one-on-one individual transaction, but in fact, it's precisely the faith of the other people that not only heals the paralytic, but gets his sins forgiven. And we will certainly have to pick up that theme again at another time. Okay, from there we go on. Uh, People are amazed, glorifying God, saying we never saw anything like this. 
Then there's the calling of Levi, the tax collector, um, who was renamed Matthew in Matthew's gospel, which is why Matthew has that name. We have Jesus sitting at the table with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees finally have gotten wind of him and are not so happy, asking why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replies, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the same sort of thing happens again, this time over fasting and Jesus saying the wedding guests can't fast while the bridegroom is with them. And then finally, uh, he moves on to the Sabbath, picking the grain. The Pharisees once again see what he's up to. And um, Jesus retorts that uh, with the story of David eating the bread of the presence, concluding the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So we've had now three stories in a row of Jesus doing things that are beginning to attract the attention of the Pharisees, quite negative as compared to the crowds who seem to be pretty thrilled with Jesus. And then at the beginning of chapter three, and this should really be the fourth consecutive unit here rather than broken up into chapters, um, we have one more such thing where he enters a synagogue, heals a man with a withered hand. The people are, the Pharisees are very unhappy about this. Jesus is angry and grieved at their hardness of heart because on the Sabbath, the right thing to do is to do good. And the story ends. And now this is really the first that the end of the opening uh, inciting incident and the beginning of our middle builds. Um, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So Mark has really set us up here with this extraordinary story of success, the superman in a sense, powerful, wise, teaches with authority, has power over demons, has power over illness, and does all these gracious and wonderful things. Everyone wants to be near him, but then this enemy faction is developing. So by the end of the first little segment of chapter three, very early in the story, we know that there is already a plot to kill him and that the story is not going to be an upward trajectory of success. Dad, do you want to offer any comment before I go on to the next I think you're, big chunk? we're moving on great. Let's keep going. Okay. So you just interrupt me when you want to draw a particular attention to something. Okay. Yep. Okay. So... Then we have a gathering of Jesus on the boat. He's going to do this more than once. We infer that this is because the acoustics are good on a boat facing the shore. Um, and so we continue to have the crowd following. He stretches a little, gathers people from farther away, not just Galilee, but also Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, Tyre, and Sidon. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. It really makes you wonder what Jesus is playing at there because he's not exactly a private figure by this point in the story already. Then we have the calling of the 12 apostles up on the mountaintop. And right as he is acquiring this new apostolic family around him, his family of origin is deeply embarrassed by what he's up to. His family heard it. They went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. One not only has no honor in one's hometown, but not in one's own family either, evidently. 
And it's not only his family, the scribes come down from Jerusalem and they're saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Jesus has his sharp rejoinder to that, uh, how can Satan cast out Satan? And warns them that they are on the brink of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by failing to perceive what animates Jesus' mission. They are uttering the ultimate insult against the Holy Spirit, um, their complete failure to understand what the Holy Spirit of God is all about. Yeah, verse 27 in chapter 3 is very interesting. It's one of my favorite little apocalyptic parables of Jesus. He says, no one is able uh, to enter into the house of a strong man uh, in order to uh, take his goods unless first he bind up the strong man and then he can ransack or, or take the things out of his house. The Pharisees have said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So who's who? Who are the demons and who is the Holy One? They're all like they're, they're like wrestlers caught up in a match and they're so entangled with each other that you can't see who is who. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say it reminds me very much of the Garden of Eden story that the goal is to know good from evil. But we get to this point in the Bible story and they can't tell good from evil. It has failed as a strategy. And so here, here's kind of a clue to the real meaning of the messianic secret is that Jesus, we readers know that Jesus is invading the realm of Satan, but he's doing this uh, incognito, as it were, undercover. And the reason for that is that he's first of all got to bind up the strong man. So that's a question. How will Jesus, through the course of this story, bind up the strong man in order to plunder his goods. That's great. And also, it also it really relativizes the enemy quality, actually, of the scribes and Pharisees, because they don't get it, and they're plotting to kill him. But they are not the ultimate villains in the story. It's Beelzebul or Satan who's the ultimate villain. That's right. It, it, as the book, uh, letter to the Ephesians says, our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. And you, you could also say, not only is it true that it's not the Pharisees who are the villains, as chapter 4 that you're about to enter into uh, shows us, it's also the disciples who are uncomprehending and don't get it. Right, right. The good guys aren't that good. Right, the good guys ain't <laughs> and that... And the bad guys aren't as bad. Right. Right. And I think that's really important for those who are rightly alarmed by um, religions that would gladly incite apocalyptic violence. This is not primarily violence against other human beings. This is violence against Satan that is being contemplated here. Okay, uh, so this section here then is is chiastic structure. There's the first mention of his family rejecting him. Then in the middle, these scribes from Jerusalem who massively misunderstand him. And then on the other side of it, more specifically, the family mother and brothers come and they sent to him to try to basically haul him home and get him out of this embarrassing situation. And Jesus replies by redefining family, that those who do the will of God are my brother and sister and mother. Okay, now we move in chapter four to what we can call the parable on the boat. We know, of course, that, or the, sorry, the sermon on the boat. We know that Matthew has the sermon on the mount. Luke has the sermon on the plain. Mark, for himself, has the sermon on the boat. But what's distinctive about this is that 
Jesus' teaching only makes it harder. It does not make it easier for anyone. So he gives these parables about the sower going out to sow, and it's very mystifying. The disciples ask him, can you please explain, like, what's going on with these parables? And Jesus invokes this very unsettling passage from Isaiah. Yeah, I'm telling them in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So just when you were really confused why Jesus was keeping a secret about himself, now we have a further mystery. Why doesn't he want people to perceive and understand? Why doesn't he want them to turn and be forgiven? Again, if this is a campaign of salvation, it is a very mysterious way to go about it. He does, however, go on to explain to the disciples and thereby to readers and listeners what the parables are all about, and then proceeds after that with some more parables that are familiar to us and picked up in the other synoptic gospels, the lamp under the basket, the parable of the seed that grows, the parable of the mustard seeds, and it concludes with many such parables. He spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable but privately to his own disciples that he explained everything. That might seem to be an advertisement, you know, sign up now to be a disciple and understand it all. As we will see, being a disciple does not do a whole lot to increase your understanding. Now we have another remarkable series of events that lead up to the disbelief at Nazareth that I mentioned at the outset. So first we have this, uh, well, let me just say, these are the four things that are going to happen. Jesus is going to calm a storm. In other words, prove his mastery over nature. Then he's going to, again, heal someone with a demon, prove his mastery over the demons. Then he's going to heal the woman with the issue of blood, proving his mastery over illness. And finally, he's going to raise Jairus' daughter, something that has not happened yet, the raising of the dead, finally proving his mastery over death. So there is this amazing, again, buildup of the Superman Jesus image, that he is Lord of nature, Lord of the demons, Lord of illness, Lord of death. And then in chapter six, we're going to find out that he can be thwarted by unbelief, an extraordinary sequence. But to back up and look at these four stories in a little more detail. So there is Jesus asleep in the boat, utterly unfazed by the great windstorm. Uh, the disciples wake him up and he says, why are you still, still so afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Obviously, that is not just a disciple's question, but by now, reader slash listener, this should be your question as well. Who is this guy? Then we have this wonderful story of the demoniac in the land of the Gerasenes, another one of my great favorites here. It's Jesus' great big Jewish joke by sending demons into pigs, unclean animals, and sending them all to their death in the sea. But what we have here also is a complete departure from what we have seen so far because when the man has been healed and all the people around him have seen that he is healed and react not with joy, but with fear uh, and probably also a fair amount of irritation that their livelihood in the form of the pigs has been destroyed. So, you know, that could be part of it. As Jesus is getting into the boat, the man says, begs, can I please be with you? Can I stay? Uh, it's a little bit reminiscent of uh, wanting to stay up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And Jesus' response this time is not, 
be silent. Instead, for the very first time, he says, "Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you." So this is extraordinary. This is the first apostolic mission that Jesus commissions to go and talk about it. It's given to Gentiles, not to Jews, and there is no command of secrecy or silence. Instead, proclaim, say a lot about it. And indeed, we are told he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marvelled. So, another very interesting and mysterious contrast: Why does it need to remain a secret among the Jews? Why does it become the first public mi- mission among the Gerasenes? Then Jesus comes back to Jewish territory, and we have a beautiful twinned story here. These are intertwined. It's one of the more sophisticated literary pieces Mark pulls off, and indeed the longest story we've come to yet. We have the woman with the issue of blood. Or first, we have Jairus, the synagogue ruler. So this is a Jewish higher up, but he's a good guy in this story, not a bad guy. Coming to ask for healing for his little daughter, who we will find out is 12 years old, and then at the end of the story, we'll come back and find that she is indeed raised from the dead by Jesus. In between, nested inside, is the story of the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. So again, you're supposed to see this correlation between the two: the 12-year-old girl, the 12-year bleeding woman, whose faith is so extraordinary that she believes all she has to do is touch his garments, and she will be made well. Jesus can tell that her touch is not like other people's touch, and he says, "Who touched me?" And the disciples think this is a ridiculous question in a thronging crowd. How could you say, "Who touched me?" Everybody has touched you. It was probably a bit like walking down the streets of Tokyo in the middle of the day. But he knows that her touch was different from those of others, and she comes forward, obviously terrified that she's going to get in trouble. But Jesus replies, "Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease." And we're going to see again as he approaches the home of the of Jairus, who's already been told his daughter is dead. Do not fear, only believe. What we're beginning to see now is a picking up in the number of references to faith, which will we will see as a major theme of Mark. And in these two cases,、um, faith is highly commended to the two people、um, who are healed. Well, the woman who is healed, and then the father who believes on his daughter be daughter's behalf. Something like the four friends of the paralytic. So again, we've seen now again, sort of like at the beginning of the gospel, this trajectory of success and glory and everything going well and beautiful things happening, and then he goes from this last healing and raising of the dead back home to Nazareth. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He teaches, but this time people re- respond. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus says, "A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own households." And then here is the stunner: and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. So again, very startling. After this commendation of faith and Jesus' extraordinary dipl- displays of power, there is no mighty work that he can do there. And his unbelief is what makes him marvel. Normally, everyone else is marveling at Jesus, but in this one case, Jesus is the one to marvel, and it's unbelief that causes him to marvel. 
now we have the story take off in several different directions at once instead of staying strictly with Jesus. And this is also a, a good thing to develop the dramatic tension of the story. First, Jesus sends out his 12 on their first apostolic mission. They don't get to do it first. The Gerasene demoniac was first. But now it's their turn to go out preaching and he gives them instructions. And then we have the sense that while they're out, we should feel the passage of time in the story. So here Mark inserts the story of John the Baptist's death and the whole nasty business of Herod who marries his brother's widow and the uh, rather unsavory watching of his stepdaughter's dancing, which is no doubt provocative and highly inappropriate. Um, and then his stupid and probably drunken vow to give her anything she wants. And she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter and the final burial and end of John the Baptist's story here. And of course, this is the end of John the Baptist's story. There is no apparition at his tomb. It's really, really over here. So then we're brought back into the narrative surrounding Jesus. The apostles come back and told them all that he's done. He once again tries to go away for privacy. It doesn't work. The crowds gather and we have the feeding of the 5,000 with the many pieces left over. And um, I was always charmed by the little detail about the green grass. I don't know why it was necessary to uh, remember that in particular. We go from there to Jesus walking on the water, another extraordinary act of Jesus' power. But now we're beginning to see how much the disciples fail. And remember, this is the disciples after they have been out marching all over Galilee and preaching Jesus' message. Uh, it concludes with him getting into the boat, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Then he crosses into Gennesaret, more healing. In chapter 7, we pick up with the first really big controversy with the Pharisees. We've seen these little episodes or outbursts, but this one really goes in deep. Um, what Jesus is really attacking here is the traditions that have developed kind of post-Moses in greater detail. Um, he is really opposed to ways in which subsequent traditions have obscured the original um, law of Moses. Uh, for instance, in 7.10, he, he talks about Moses saying, honor your father and your mother, and he objects to the way they make void the word of God by their tradition. And then he goes on to redefine what defiles a person. It's not what go, goes in, but what comes out. Thus, he declared all foods clean. This seems to be very much reflective of a later context where you have believing Gentiles in the congregation and trying to figure out what kind of food they're going to share. This is obviously a really big deal for Paul, and we hear about it in Acts as well when Paul and Peter uh, come almost to blows over this question. Rather fittingly, then, going from questions of what defiles and what doesn't, we come to the region of Tyre and Sidon, again at the far edge of Jewish territory, and he's encountered by a woman who is a Gentile, a Syrophoenician. She begs for her daughter to be healed. Once again, take note, this is the faith of someone asking for the healing of someone else, which Jesus responds positively to, though not at first. And he makes this rather shocking remark. Let the little children, or let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. We are to infer that the children is the house of Israel and the dogs are the Gentiles. And she whips right back at him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he is so impressed, he says, all right, you win, the demon has left your daughter. And so it is. And finally, now we come up to a last series of healings and 
controversies before we hit the turning point of the story. So Jesus heals a deaf man in the region of the Decapolis. He says this funny word, Ephatha, be healed. That has been preserved for us. And he speaks plainly. Jesus again says, tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure. Then we have a second uh, mass feeding of 4,000 this time instead of 5,000. We have another bust up with the Pharisees over the sign. Jesus says, I won't give you a sign. He attempts to teach his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples, being very clever folks, say, oh, he's mad that we forgot to bring bread in the boat. Jesus is seriously irritated at this and says, do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? In fact, exactly like that bit of Isaiah he quoted earlier. And then Jesus adds, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And so the story ends. This one always cracks me up too, because I don't understand. What on earth is he driving at here? And the disciples don't understand either. It's a... <laughs> hilarious confusion building on itself here. Then we have the blind man in Bethsaida. And now this is a particularly weird one. Jesus spits on his eyes, lays hands on him and asks, do you see anything? He looks up and says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So Jesus has to do it again. And that time on the second try, it works. Another peculiar detail preserved for us. My guess is because this is the last thing that happens before the big turning point in the revelation of first who Jesus is and then what it means to be who Jesus is. After that, we will see there is another uh, healing of the blind, which happens right on the first time. I think what Mark is telling us here is until you know this important detail about Jesus' destiny, you are not seeing clearly, but but, uh, people look like trees walking or some other such obscuring of reality. All right, Dad, I've almost talked myself out of breath here. So <laughs> Yeah, I think you know we'll have to make a break here in the middle of the Gospel of Mark and continue it. But uh, let's, let's work through Chapter 8 and the Transfiguration story. All right, we'll do this as a, a two-parter then. Yeah. So then uh, I tell you what, yeah, why don't you take over here and you talk us through Peter's confession uh, all the way through the transfiguration, and then we'll pick up again after that next time. Okay, so let's begin with something that by this point in the discussion of Mark should be obvious to us. The primary question is who? Who is this stranger uh, in our midst? Who is he? And that's exactly now what Jesus takes the initiative on in chapter 8, in verse uh, 27. He says, uh, who do people say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah or one of the prophets. And he turned to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, saying to him, you are the Christ. Now remember, that's just like what we heard the first demon say to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 25. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Peter replied and said to Jesus, you are the Christ. 
And likewise, just as Jesus immediately rebuked the demon in verse chapter 8, verse 30, Jesus rebukes them, all of the disciples, in order that they say nothing to anyone about him. Once again, trying to keep everyone silent while he's rapidly becoming the most famous person in all of Palestine. Right. So this is quite deliberately, we readers, we who are reading or hearing the Gospel of Mark are aware of all of these things. From the beginning, we heard the heavenly voice say to Jesus only, you are my beloved son, though no one else in the story heard it. Right? So we're aware of these dynamics in a way that the figures in the story are not aware. So you have a, a, a confession, you are the Christ, that echoes what the demon said in chapter 1, and you have a rebuke that echoes what Jesus said to the demon in chapter 1. Very mysterious, putting Peter in the same boat as a demon that's being exorcised. It's going to get worse. Hold, hold your horses. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. <laughs> Uh, and so verse 31 now is the f- first of three predictions of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. And he began to teach them, saying that, and here's a special word in Greek, dei, it means it is necessary. And it's a, what we call a divine passive. Instead of saying God requires actively, we say passively, it is necessary, but it's a divine passive. This is God's will. It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer much and be killed by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be put to death and after three days be raised again. And then Uh, After having announced this to the disciples, uh, Jesus, uh, Mark, comments, and thus boldly he spoke the word to them, or maybe openly, uh, or boldly. Yeah, my translation says plainly. Plainly. He said this plainly. Right. Right. Now there's no more fudging or or, uh, distracting or alluding. It's just right out there now. So now, folks, the secret is out. Jesus is the Christ who, as the Son of Man, will suffer much, be persecuted, uh, and be killed, and on the third day rise. Uh, When he had heard this, then Peter turns around to Jesus, and he begins, and here's that word again, he begins to rebuke him. Epitimao, he begins to rebuke him. Now, what's going on here is that Peter thinks Jesus has been seized by the devil. What kind of crazy talk is this? Christs don't get crucified. Victors don't get victimized. This is nonsense. This is demonic nonsense. Jesus, Satan's got a hold of you. He's confusing you. Peter is trying to cast the demon out of Jesus. Incredible. Incredible. But then what does Jesus do in turn? Jesus turns and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter. So they're exchanging exorcisms. Now, if if you don't think that's true, then listen to the words Jesus speaks to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. 
for you are thinking not the things of God, but those of human beings. And poor Peter, he's had no preparation for this at all. You know, he got the Christ part. He suddenly slammed with this horrifying cross part. Of course he doesn't like it. But that instantaneous rejection of Jesus' destiny on the cross is so such a desperate misunderstanding of what Jesus is about that it puts him in Satan's camp, not in Jesus' camp. Exactly. I think we can have pity on poor Peter. Uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better for poor Peter. But on the other hand, uh, what a tremendous figure for everyone who has tried in their own willpower, according to their own brain power, their own strength and understanding and effort, tried to be a follower of Jesus. And under their own power, shipwrecks fail. Yeah, an icon for all of our religious efforts. Right. And I just want to point out again, more uh, just say it really plainly here, this is the first time we have had a whisper of the cross. We did know that there was a plot to kill Jesus, but Jesus has said nothing about the cross till now. So it's amazing. We're already halfway through the book at chapter 8, Mark is 16 chapters long, and this is the first time we have heard anything about this. So this really is the turning point of the whole story and a startling piece of news that puts our previous series of glorious buildups, you know, success stories, just puts them in a whole different light now. Sure does. And actually, the explicit reference to the cross now comes in verse 34. Of course, you're right that he refers to his persecution. And what are these thoughts of God that Jesus uh, wants Peter to understand? And how are they different from thoughts of human beings? Verse uh, 33. In verse 34, Uh, Jesus calls the crowd together with his disciples, and he says to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, uh, let them deny themselves and take up... It's singular, yeah, yeah, Let him deny, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever uh, uh, desires to save his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life on account of me, on account of the gospel, will save it. So, and that continues on there, uh, that little speech. Yeah, about being ashamed right 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 now. Of the Son of Man in this life. So, the point here is that it's not just that the Christ, shockingly and surprisingly enough, uh, will suffer and die and be raised again, but also this is the fate of the Christians who follow him. And that's the little speech there that's given. So more more PR problems for those who would be Christians. Right. Yes, not, not exactly uh, designed uh, for congregational uh, membership recruitment campaigns. <laughs> that's right. All right, I think I think we should probably stop here and start with the Transfiguration next time. Okay, that takes us half, halfway through the gospel then. Halfway through the story, that seems fair, and that's an exciting place to end. Do you have any final comments you want to make on this last bit before we go? Well, yeah, just this simple one here, that the whole first half of the gospel of Mark has progressively raised and complexified the central question, who is this man? Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus? And that is, in theology, as we've discussed in earlier podcasts, 
That is a central question. How are we to identify God? Answer, we are to identify God through the identification of this man as his son. That's, uh, and that question of identifying God takes precedent over other kinds of questions that we might conceivably ask. For example, in philosophical theology, the primary question is not who is God, but the primary question is what is God or what is divine. And so philosophers typically think that they can answer the question metaphysically by analysis of the qualities and properties and attributes that can be generally considered to be worthy of a truly divine being. Of course, they answer that question in all sorts of contradictory ways. But the point is, is that for them, the question, what is God or divine, takes priority. But in theology, following the Bible, the first question is, who is God? And we are to bracket our preconceived ideas of what God is until we have a working answer to the question, who God is. And then we have to rethink all our ideas about what God might be on the basis of the revelation of who God is. And that's the meaning of the word apocalypse. We've been calling Mark's gospel apocalyptic uh, and referring to the conflict between the reign of God and the reign of Satan. But even more basically, the meaning of the word apocalyptic is revelation, God's self-revelation, God disclosing to us who God is. And I'll just wrap up that by saying that in all good human communication, the way you find out who someone is, is by hearing a story about them. And that's exactly what we're getting here is, this is the story about Jesus. That's how you know who he is. That's how you know who God is. And only then do you therefore know what God is exactly. So there is a primacy to this storytelling approach to give you, to disclose and reveal the truth about God. Amen, sister. <laughs> Daughter, don't you mean? <laughs> <laughs> don't confuse the audience, right? <laughs> All right, yes. So next time we will pick up and finish up the Gospel of Mark and draw out some of its major themes. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.